Hello and welcome back to the last of two episodes for this season of Give Me Some Truth. I'm Obadiah Jones, and this is the podcast where I present and highlight new research that helps to unravel fact from fiction in the Beatles' history. This episode and the next one feature new discoveries made by author and researcher Daffod Rees, published in his brilliant book, The Beatles 1963, A Year in the Life. Daffod's book is full of new research, but I chose two bits of information that I think are particularly exciting. I originally planned to combine them into one long episode, but you'll instead get them in two shorter episodes because, although both topics took place in 1963, they're otherwise unrelated. For the first topic, we turn to the end of June 1963. Having completed their third UK package tour at the start of June, the last of which was co-headlined with Roy Orbison, the Beatles spent the rest of the month playing one-off gigs all over the country. Now, it's not every day that you come across previously unknown Beatle concerts, especially when there's a book on the subject written by Mark Lewison, but that is exactly what Daffod has done. In the research for his book, Daffod uncovered two concerts the Beatles performed in the greater Birmingham area on the 29th of June, 1963. In this episode, Daffod and I discuss how he made this discovery and the evidence that supports it. Hello, Daffod, and thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you so much. Let's start at the beginning. What what was the inspiration for 1963? Why 1963 specifically? I think it was the most significant year in the band's career not necessarily musically, but they came back on New Year's Day from Hamburg after their last session there. Um, When I say session, you know, performing at the Star Club. And it was that famous winter, so they arrived in snow. Uh, They went up to Scotland. First gig was cancelled because of the snow. Uh, One of the shows they did, there are supposedly only 20 people that showed up. The figure varies between 12 and 24, but 20 seems about right. And then by the end of the year, they were six weeks away from the Ed Sullivan show. And I think even in this day and age, for an act to have come from absolutely nowhere to that worldwide renown would be rare. In 63, it was uh, extraordinary because there was no uh, internet, no social media, no nothing. It was purely the power of what they did that year musically, and how, certainly in the UK, uh, everyone just got caught up in it in a way that we'd never seen before. You know, Elvis, obviously, but he'd never been to England. Uh, There'd been other, Frank Sinatra had been mobbed when he'd come over, but nothing. And also, it's a whole different thing when you're passionate about one artist, but when there's four of them, it's even more special. As you probably know, uh, Mark Lewison, when he began his, his epic trilogy he he originally started with the idea of doing a 1963 book uh which i did which, not know that and he's never told me that oh really oh. <laughs> yeah he's i've heard him say that a few times in interviews where uh he he really thought that was a, an important year yeah and then and then from there it, it grew into well nobody's really told the whole story right so right but uh, mark will but mark will Yeah, 2002 was the first interview with Mitch Murray, the songwriter. And I wasn't quite sure at that time 
what it would be used for. My initial thought was to do six-volume biography. Um, and I was going to start it with 1963, which was the one I most wanted to write because I knew it, it's the most compelling one of all, I think, because it's the breakthrough. If you could talk a bit about your research process, um, where did you begin with this book? Were you working from uh, an existing timeline like Mark's chronology book or uh... yes the, the template which i do mention in the book was um the chronicle um but as mark admitted to me he said when he did that it was he, he started it pre-internet days so he acknowledged there were some errors that, that were made just because the information that was out there was wrong and he didn't have any way of checking up whether it was right so there were a few dates that were were, were not right um, so that was the that was the template, and and also the recording sessions for all the recording they did in '63. So those were the two books that I used. Um, there was also a very good website, and I can't even remember the name of the guy. He 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 went to all the venues and took photographs, and where the venues were no longer there, he took photographs of what's there now. But he stopped at the end of June. He did six months, and that was it. And there were some there were some great things there. Um, so that was that was how that started, and then I wrote letters to local newspapers in England, saying, "Could you please put something in your newspaper saying if you saw the Beatles in 1963, would you get in touch with me?" So I got responses from that, and they were because they were email responses. They were, you know, they were what they were. Um, and a friend of mine who I'd worked with years ago at Decca Records by the name of Jan Gammy, I called her up and said, would you be interested in phoning people up and chatting to them? And she said, yeah, I'll do that. And she got far more from them by being conversational with them. And that's really how the book got going. So we're talking about more than a decade ago. And then I made, and then I realized I'm still not there. It's still not going to be good enough. So I made three, yeah, three distinct trips to the UK, two months at a time. So, for example, I recreated a Scottish tour. I actually drove all the roads they went along, which was a good thing because I found out something that, that no one had realised. So that helped enormously. And then I, I found people as well who, um, while I was on my trip, interviewed a, a fair amount of people as well. So that's how it really came together. And then you spent some time at the British Library, I imagine. Oh, how, how can one not spend time at the British Library? One of my um, favourite places. It is the uh, that and the BBC are the two greatest institutions in the UK, and anyone trying to demolish them should, yeah, should leave the country. Anyway, um, when I started, it was the British Newspaper Library up in Collendale, which of course was uh, so they closed that down. Gosh, I suppose a decade ago now. Um, the main reason being was that all the bound volumes of the newspapers were uh, falling apart. So they moved them all up to Yorkshire, where they're now in a climate-controlled building. And the sad thing about Collendale was that they swore that the building would would remain because it's a listed building. It's now been knocked down. It's a block of flats, and it looks horrible. So, so it all started at... Um, Collendale, and then now you have to go to the British Library to do all the research. Um, and to anybody that's never been there, you have to have a card to get in the reading rooms. 
but which is you free. Can, it which is free, and you can spend all day long there. And whenever I come to England, I spend most of my time in the British Library. It's just wonderful. So, were you specifically looking at local newspapers for all of the places you knew they went? Yes. So, so all the local newspapers, local newspapers, not necessarily where they went, but that were close by, that would cover stories about them. Obviously, all the pop newspapers, all the little, you know, the Mirabelle, Boyfriend, Valentine, all those, anything I could find that they had, anything at all. Um, but the, it was the local newspapers where I um, unearthed extraordinary amounts of material. So 29th of June, 1963. Yep. Had previously been a dark day in our, in our understanding. And, and we Correct. now know that they played two gigs on that day. Correct. These two performances were part of a circuit of four venues in the Birmingham area run by husband and wife promoters Joe and Mary Regan, known affectionately as Pa and Ma. Did you ever find out how Brian Epstein got onto them? Uh, no, I mean he he you know he he found you know he 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 found these local promoters that that um, somehow I mean he he went about his work very studiously and you know he he got on the Jack Fallon circuit and and when when they started moving out of the northwest he obviously found promoters in certain areas and called them up and that's how it happened well, and birmingham's an obvious place because it's not too far from liverpool anyways so. right and it's a massive catchment area as well the beatles played their first concert for the regans on the 11th of january at the plaza ballroom in old hill it was typical of these venues to do a double header at two of the four venues on the same night the two main acts would play at opposite venues and then swap for the second part of the evening. On the 11th of January, however, bad weather meant the Beatles couldn't make the second show at the Ritz Ballroom in King's Heath, so it was rescheduled to the 15th of February. For this first booking, the Beatles actually stayed the night at the Regan's home in Woodburn Road, Edge Baston. And so there's a wonderful story about them. I can't remember everything in the book because it you know, I finished it a long time ago, but I believe the King's Heath gig was a double header and they made the first gig, but couldn't make the second gig. I, I believe January Correct. the 11th, something like that. And they stayed the night at the Regan's house. And I think it's you and Rose told me the story that at all the venues, you know, back then there were no credit cards, checks, things like that. Postal orders for gigs. You just paid cash. And, and Joe Regan was often seen with a shovel shoveling all the coins into a bag at the end of the night and um but but you and remember the names of their alsatian dogs as well which is kind of cool oh wow when the beatles returned to birmingham in february to fulfill the ritz ballroom gig they also performed that night at the plaza ballroom in hansworth by the time the group played the regan circuit again on saturday the 29th of june and the following week on friday the 5th of july they had outgrown the venues but honored their commitments to Ma and Pa Regan. On the 29th of June, the Beatles first performed at the Plaza Ballroom in Hansworth. The support acts were the Blue Stars and Mike Sheridan and the Knight Riders. This performance was witnessed by local fan Brian Nichols, who recalled it being loud. All four were smiling and enjoying themselves, seemingly free from any of the tensions that were to beset them in later years. They sounded just like their recordings, and because of the then poor sound quality of live television broadcasts, much, much better in the flesh. Brian Nichols, yeah, Bri yeah. It was rather unfortunate because I, I met with Brian as well. Uh, um, had a couple of hours, went enormous detail with him, 
And and one of the things I decided in the book was I was going to have only have one story per day. And his story ended up on the same day as somebody else's. That was a story I couldn't, I, I just couldn't reject. So Brian, a lot of what Brian told me is in the text, but it's not in, it, it, he doesn't have a standalone story. But he was a member of the Fleetwoods, I seem to remember. And he, they went there and they wrote down all the numbers the Beatles performed. The Beatles then drove to the Plaza Ballroom in Old Hill to finish off the night. Daffod found an original poster for the second performance, which is reproduced in his book. Based on the poster, the opening acts were the resident band The Plazens, Beat LTD, Dave Lacey and the Corvettes, the Kozaks, and again Mike Sheridan and the Knight Riders, who alternated venues with the Beatles. At what point in, in the process of writing the book did you did you realize, hang on a second? I can't recall exactly, but I used the, the Beatles Bible website, and on there they don't have June 29th. They have, and in fact, I went on there this morning. They still don't have June 29th. Um, so July 5th, there was a comment from a guy called Ewan Rose, who I subsequently met, went to his house, interviewed him. Lovely, lovely man. He was the drummer of the Cheetahs. And he wrote a comment saying, uh, talking about the group, the Blue Stars. He said, we played with the Beatles that day. I've never even heard of the Blue Stars. So then there's another comment that mentions the Cossacks, the Red Caps, the whatever I've got the names here. Cossacks, Cheetahs, the night, night Trade. Yeah, all, all these. All, yeah, so th- th- there are plenty of other bands. Then someone also posted on Vitals Be- Beetle Bible. She just le- puts her name as Margaret, said, I saw them the week before. To which a guy called David replied and said, you're correct, Margaret, but you will have a job trying to convince the experts. So, you know, I thought there must be something behind this. So I then had from one of the emails I sent out to newspapers, I got an email from someone saying I saw them on the Saturday. The foot, that was the 29th. And I know it was a Saturday because she did two things. She went out to the local market and bought a dress, which she wore that night. She said if it was a Friday, well, first of all, if it was a Friday, there was no market open that day and she would have been at school. So, and she sent me the poster of the gig for the 29th. Now that's possible. We know in many cases, posters were printed where the gigs never happened. So I I wasn't, I didn't put that much credence in the poster. It's possible it was incorrect. For example, maybe they had been booked for the 29th, poster was done. They didn't do the 29th, so they rescheduled to the 5th. But then Richard Houghton has written a series of books called I Was There. And in the Beatles one, he found a lady who actually had the uh, page of her diary for the day that she went to see them, which was the 29th. I believe it's the 29th. Then I found another guy who also had a diary, and he has it in July the 5th. Or it might be the other way around. So I had two clear visual proofs that the two gigs happened. And then when I was uh, on one of my visits to the UK, I was driving around that area. So the plaza in Old Hill is still there. It's now a a disco. It's a platinum nightclub or something like that. Hansworth is gone. That's not there anymore. But, But the building's there, but not the venue. So I went there and I, I, 
met somebody, I can't remember how, but I went to her house and she said, oh yes, we went to the gig on the 29th. There was a line outside and we thought we're not going to get in. And someone said, don't worry, they're coming back here next Friday. So she went to see the gig on the Friday. And you quote her in the book, her name's Jean Fox. Yes, I believe so. Right. So then, and I t- anyway, I told Mark Lewison about this. He said, you're on your own. <laughs> he, he, he could not get his head around it because it had never been revealed. And then I got an email from him with a press cutting from a, a newspaper I'd never even heard of, which was printed the following week from a guy who said, yeah, we, were, we played with the Beatles last, last Saturday at the Plaza Old Hill. Um, and then there was another guy, um, there's a, there was a story in, the, it might've been the Birmingham Mail from, uh, so, so the, the Plaza Old Hill and the Hansworth, and there were four venues in the area that were run by Martin Parr Regan. And they had a driver who would, so basically the bands would do double headers. So, so on that day, the Beatles would do Hansworth and then drive to drive to Old Hill, and while they were doing that, a band playing in Old Hill would be driven to Handsworth to do the show there. So they all they always did doubleheaders. So he wrote the whole he did a whole article in I think the Birmingham Mail about this about the fact oh I re- clearly remember um, driving the Beatles on this particular day. So he. Re- related the whole story about driving them there. And there was this mystery that they showed up late and no one ever knew where they went to and things like this. So, so I took all these different clues. Um, I, I mean, the two obvious ones were the two diary entries and realized that they, they did play twice. What we don't know is whether the Saturday was added on at the last minute or whether it was always planned they were going to do the Saturday and the following Friday. The other reason I knew there was something going on about it was, so so on the, 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 the Saturday, um, that was two nights after John and Paul had finished writing She Loves You. And on the Monday, they went down to Abbey Road and recorded it. On the Saturday, Sunday, they drove to Great Yarmouth to do a gig there. And there is a letter that George wrote to his sister Louise f- from the Smallbrook Hotel in Birmingham on the Saturday night. So the question is, why would they be there right. if they hadn't been doing a gig in that area on that Saturday? So there's... Yeah, it's beyond beyond doubt to me. Yes, absolutely. And and, and before I'd read your book, I I had that letter that George Ritt wrote from the Albany Hotel, uh, where right. you know, it, all I could figure was, well, they're driving from north to south, so maybe they stopped there overnight. But uh, it didn't make any sense, really. <clears throat> no, because they, they so they they played in Leeds on the Friday night. Mm-hmm. So if they went from Leeds to Yarmouth, they would go nowhere near Birmingham. And if they drove back to Liverpool that Friday night after the Leeds gig, they wouldn't go through Birmingham either. So for him to be at the hotel, the Albany, they had to have been in the region for a specific reason. And it was that, it was that Saturday night gig, the 29th. And, and also the thing is that, so getting back to the original part about you and Rose being part of the cheaters. So he was absolutely right. So 
so it's one of those remarkable things where you can have a group of people who've been to two separate events, but believe they were at the same event. For example, Beth Bevan, he relates the story. He was he was playing in the Saturday gig, and uh, this is when they showed up late, and he and they had to f- keep playing for a while because the Beatles hadn't arrived. So, you know, so these people wouldn't have met each other, other than the fact that they might have met in the uh, you know on the circuit because all these bands were kind of regular. So, and and one of the guys in th- in those bands also. Um, gave me a story. He lives out in Hawaii now, and um, so not these bands wouldn't necessarily have known each other. Some of them did, so it per- makes perfect sense if the Blue Stars and the Cheaters didn't know each other. It's because they didn't support the Beatles at the same gig, but they did at the same venue. <laughs> so I think we've put that one to bed. I think, and and Mark has now acknowledged. Yep, <laughs> those two gigs happen. He's on board, so it'll be in his second second volume. I hope so. Well, very good, very good. That's very cool. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that gets me very excited. So. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Don't forget to come back next week for the season finale and Daffod's second myth-busting discovery. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for a future episode, or you have additional information about the history presented in one of these episodes, you can write to me by email to Pod at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at GimmeSomeTruthPod. I post episode artwork and other relevant visuals on these platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a future episode. Bye for now.